All right, if you want to join me in the book of Exodus chapter 2, we were told last week in our text together that there arose a new king over Egypt uh, there who didn't know Joseph and as uh, that generation of Joseph and his brothers had passed and died off the scene and the children of Israel began to multiply there in the land of Egypt that that new king, that new pharaoh over the land of Egypt that didn't have a relationship with Joseph as uh, the prior pharaoh had. Uh, began to, it seems, become a little insecure and concerned because of the multiplication of the children of Israel, was concerned that they might join potentially one of their enemies and try and overthrow and uh, take off from the land. So remember, he then came up with the idea to basically set taskmasters over the multiplying people of of Israel and to subject them to rigor and to hard labor to make them build cities and be subject to uh, hard labor and thinking that this maybe would just exhaust them, that this would diminish their ability to continue to be prolific and keep multiplying and growing and not recognizing that ultimately it was it was the Lord that was doing it. The Lord was causing not just a natural, but it seems almost a supernatural multiplication of the growth of the population of Israel going from a clan to a large, large nation as we talked about, and that no matter what he did, it wasn't going to hinder or stop the work of God because you know, no matter what uh, the enemy may ever seek to do and the different forms and, and fashions he takes his endeavors to try and uh, hinder and oppose the work of the Lord, uh, the Bible tells us that he who is in us is greater than he who is in this world. And ultimately, the enemy may create hassle, he may create agita and heartache and make things difficult, but uh, the Lord will always still triumph. He will always accomplish what he still intends to do. And uh, this wasn't working. It was making their lives bitter. It was making their lives miserable as they were under this hard bondage and slavery. For, it seems, four generations, the Bible tells us, a few hundred years they're enduring this. Remember, we then came to the point where the king then uh, told the people in his land as we came toward uh, the end of chapter 1 that what he wanted them to do was that it says chapter 1 verse 22 that he commanded all the people saying everyone, uh, every son, excuse me, who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So this edict goes forth. This diabolical edict of genocide to try and eliminate the Jewish nation, to eliminate the people of Israel. Again, he was concerned about sons because they could be those who would populate a military force. Uh, young girls wouldn't be something threatening because they could just take the girls and marry them into their Egyptian culture and so forth and eliminate the race uh, of the Jewish people. So this edict has now gone forth that any male son born to the Jews found was to be tossed into the Nile River and to be murdered. And I want to just for backdrop's sake read chapter 2 verse 1 down through verse 10. We left off in verse 10 last week, but just for context's sake to bring us up to speed, it tells us chapter 2 verse 1 that a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, and we talked about, this is Moses' parents here, uh, Amram and Jochebed, they already have two other children, Miriam, the oldest daughter, and Aaron, the son that was about three years older than Moses. We're now coming to the birth of Moses, this deliverer that God will raise up for Israel. That they saw that he was beautiful. That is, there was something that they recognized, they discerned somehow, we're not told, but they sensed something was 
was special about the hand of God being upon the life of this young child. So by faith, the Bible tells us, they hid him, Hebrews 11 tells us, for three months, not fearing the king, the threatening of their own life and welfare to keep their son alive. But when they could no longer hide him, verse 3, remember they took, put him into an ark of bulrushes, sent him down uh, the Nile River Bank, put him there among the reeds in a place, no doubt, where he probably wouldn't float down too fast, where he'd kind of be safe, just entrusting him to God, hoping and praying that if God's hand was upon him, that somehow God would intervene, not knowing what he would do, but believing that God would do something. And I think that's faith sometimes. Uh, faith is knowing that God will do something, but not knowing exactly what it's going to be and how he's going to do it, but saying, Lord, uh, I sense that you're in this. We believe that you, this is what you want. So we don't know exactly how it's going to happen and how it's going to come to pass, but we trust you're going to preserve our child. And, and they, they, they station him there among the, the reeds. And remember, Miriam, his uh, sister, was nearby. And, and as Pharaoh's daughter came out, the very daughter of the Pharaoh, to bathe, she heard the, uh, the, the rustling, no doubt, probably there. She saw this basket. It tells us that when she opened the lid, the baby began to weep, and God touched her heart, and she had compassion. And rather than murdering this Hebrew child, again, it was her father, is the Pharaoh of Egypt, that gave this edict. Instead of casting him right back into the river... She had compassion and chose to take him as a son for herself. Miriam standing nearby, we saw in verse 7, then makes a recommendation to her and says, Hey, uh, if you like a, a nurse, a wet nurse, the idea is, again, because this wasn't her baby, she was going to adopt Moses as her son to bring him into the uh, empire of Egypt. She says, do you want me to call a nurse for you among the Hebrew women? Lots of the Hebrew women would have uh, lactation going on because many of them were giving birth to sons and their sons are being taken away and murdered. So she says, I can get a wet nurse for you. I can find someone to nurse the young child. Uh, and she says, that sounds like a great idea. Go. And Miriam runs back and says, Mom, I got a job for you. I know exactly what you could do if you were looking for a little side work to help dad out, maybe with the carpentry business a little bit. Uh, would you be interested in nursing, nursing a child? Actually, would you be interested in having back your son and being able to nurse him? And, of course, we saw this incredible turn of events, how God just superintends and gives back what she gave up. Uh, it tells us, verse 9, that Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take the child, go away. Find a nurse for me and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So basically she got paid, uh, government stipend, basically got paid uh, to nurse her own child uh, and to have Moses with her, as we talked about at the end of our study last time, for those early years of his life. They didn't wean a child to maybe somewhere up to, at times, three to five years old. So in these very young, impressionable years, she got to be with Moses, no doubt to talk to him about his people, about his lineage, to share with him the things of Yahweh God, and, and to deposit all those important spiritual treasures into his heart as a young man, no doubt, again, just further preparing him for God's ultimate calling and plan for his life. And eventually she would turn him over to become the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, but this incredible window of opportunity she had to be with Moses and to invest these things as he was living with his mother in those early years. Verse 10 says, The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he then became her son. So he becomes the adopted child of the daughter of 
Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's daughter called his name Moses, which means drawn out. It says, because I drew him out of the water. Now, as we said last time, between chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 11, really there is in essence a 40-year gap. A 40-year gap of, of silence. It just says chapter 2, verse 10, that the child grew. So this is probably maybe a time when he's just, again, a young child. And then verse 11 says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. That is when he was a full-grown man that he went out to his brethren. Notice he understands the Jews are his brethren. He's fully aware. That's not a surprise. It's not as if he, he finds out, oh, I was adopted. That's not the case here. He knew. He spent those early years uh, with his mother, Jochebed, and his father, Amram, and his sister, and his brother. He, he knew his identity he knew who he was. I wonder if in some way she even at times spoke things into his life. Moses, I sense that, that Yahweh God has a plan for you, son. I sense that he has a purpose for your life. He has a destiny for you. And as he, he recognized these things, it says he went out to his brethren, looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now, Here's what I want you to recognize. The Bible gives us a little bit of insight of what happened between chapter 2, verse 10 and chapter 2, verse 11. Those first 40 years of Moses' life. And if you're familiar with Moses' life, many times it's very interesting to take note that Moses' life is basically broken up into kind of like three 40-year segments. The first 40 years he spent growing up in the house of Pharaoh, uh, being, uh, in a sense, trained in the ways of Egypt, learning the wisdom of the Egyptians. Uh, it tells us in Acts chapter 7 regarding his upbringing. It tells us this, Acts 7, verse 21 and 22. It says, When Moses was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And listen, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So that tells us something. For 40 years, Moses was raised in the palace. He was raised as the grandson of Pharaoh himself. Now, historians tell us, Josephus and some others, that it is believed that that current Pharaoh only had one daughter, and that was this daughter that took Moses uh, to be her adopted son which makes it then very, very likely, and we can't be dogmatic because we don't have biblical credibility on this, but credible historians uh, tell us that that would then mean if this daughter was the only child of the current Pharaoh, that Moses, as a prince of Egypt, is very likely being groomed and prepared to take over the throne. Again, it's a dynastic empire, which means the next male in line would take over the throne. No democracy, no Republican, Democratic, you know, vote. None of that exists. You just, the next son, the next male in line is who takes over the throne. So I want you to understand, here is Moses for the first 40 years of his life. He's learning all the philosophies of Egypt. He, he He's learning all the things. I mean, the Egyptians, if you ever study... You know, ancient uh, Egypt, I mean, these people were brilliant. The things they understood about architecture and mathematics and uh, the embalming processes that they, in a sense, uh, perfected in ways that are just, you know, beyond our comprehension. I mean, these were 
brilliant people. You want to talk about incredible learning and education. And Moses is having all this poured into him. On top of that, he's learning how to potentially run an empire someday. So he is having everything. In, in a sense, he's going to the Harvard of ancient Egypt. You understand what I'm saying? He's getting educated. He's being equipped and prepared. He's got a, a, a silver spoon in his mouth his whole life long. Everything is at his fingertips, the power, the resources, the wealth. He's got designer everything. He lacks for nothing. He's growing up in a palace, uh, in, a, in a wealthy, sophisticated nation. And that's the first 40 years of his life, experiencing all those things. And then chapter 2, verse 11, then says, Now it came to pass in those days that when he was grown... He went out to his brethren, looked at their burdens, and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he knew that he was of the Hebrew line, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. I want to give you another connection of what takes place here. Hebrews chapter 11, and if you're a note taker, you might want to jot this in there. Hebrews 11 verse 24 and 25 tells us this. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, listen to what it says. When he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So the Bible gives us a very interesting insight there in Hebrews chapter 11, this chapter about the hall of faith. It says, by faith, Moses, when he became full grown, when he became of age, he made a life altering decision somewhere around the age of 40, where when he became of age, it says, by faith, he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. Now, what does that mean? It's full implications. Does that mean at some point when he was offered and made aware that you will be taking over the throne as the next pharaoh of Egypt that Moses had to come to a place where to his mother and his grandfather he had to say, do you know what? I understand what's available to me. I understand what I've been prepared for all my life. And I understand all that could offer to me. All the power and all the wealth and the resources. And I would lack for nothing and have this incredible position and this incredible opportunity but I am willing to refuse all of that because I believe that God of my fathers has called me instead to associate with my people. And I want to follow the God of my fathers rather than take this incredible worldly opportunity. And he refused. He refused the opportunity that was set before him. And instead it says chose. Again, it wasn't if he was subject to suffering and affliction he literally it says chose to suffer affliction with the people of god than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin he esteemed being right in relationship with god and he esteemed associating with god's people and fulfilling god's destiny for his life over it says the passing pleasures of sin the passing pleasure sin is pleasurable for a season and at some point moses came to this place where he made a judgment he made a decision and sometimes I think, you know, God may bring us to a place where there are those life-altering decisions where sometimes we choose. Are we going to choose to be all in and follow the Lord? Are we going to choose to embrace all that the world offers us and the opportunities that are set before us? And sometimes the world can offer some really great opportunities. But those really great opportunities that the world sets before us may also be the very things that hinder us 
from embracing the fullness of what it means to really follow the Lord wholeheartedly in our lives. And sometimes we have to choose. We have to choose. What's it going to be? And it may mean, at times, refusing what looks like a golden opportunity. Do you understand? From the natural perspective, people would look at what Moses did, he refused, and think, you are out of your mind. Why would you give up the empire of Egypt? Why would you give up the wealth and the opportunity and the power and the prosperity? Why would you give all of that up, this comfortable, incredible life, to go and and associate with the people of God and, and, and to take such a lower status in life and to give up all that and to struggle instead? But see, it was just a value system. Moses had a different value system. And something happened in this young man's heart. Again, I think the seeds are coming to fruition of what his godly mother and godly father had planted in him. And at this point in his life, the Bible says, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they were old, they won't depart from it. And, and now you see the fruition, the fruit of that coming to pass, where he comes to a place where he makes a decision to say, you know what, I will refuse the world so that I can embrace the people of God and what God's plan has for me instead. And he goes out this day, it says, it seems he's made this decision already by faith. And he goes out and he's observing his brethren, the people of Israel, being mistreated by the Egyptians. And one day, it says, in the midst of this, he sees an Egyptian beating, probably abusing one of the Hebrew slaves. The language seems to indicate in an abusive way. And maybe the Hebrew servant's life was in jeopardy. Again, we're not certain. But Moses hates this oppression. He has a heart to help people. We see that all throughout as we look at these next chapters ahead. He's always wanting to help those who are being mistreated, those who are being oppressed. He has a heart to just genuinely want to help. And he sees this taking place. And he impulsively, it says, verse 12, looks this way and he looks that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Again, was it an accidental death? Was it a purposeful death? The bottom line is he seeks to intervene, and in the midst of it, he actually ends up then murdering an Egyptian, uh, which probably necessarily was not the right thing that God would have intended to do, and he tries to bury him now in the sand. Now, again, Moses would fully understand the value God puts upon life. That, That wasn't something that he should have done. In fact, I think it's indicated by verse 12 there where it says, notice, look at the language. He looked this way, and then he looked that way, and then he killed him and buried him hit him in the sand. He did something he shouldn't have done, and then he tried to hide what he did. That indicates he's doing something wrong. And when you look this way, you look that way, and then you do something, uh, that's a pretty good indication. Why is he looking this way? Because he doesn't want to get caught. Now, here's the thing, and I want you to take notice of this. The mistake Moses made is this, is he never looked up. He looked this way. Oh, nobody's looking. And he looked that way. Okay, nobody's looking. Now I can do what's wrong. What he forgot was the Bible tells us that all of a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Proverbs 5 tells us, and he's familiar with all of our paths. Moses' mistake in the wrong decision and the ungodly thing he does here and the mistake he makes at this point in his life is he forgot to look up. And so many times that is the mistake that we make when we do things. We think, oh, well, nobody's looking. My wife's not aware. My fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord aren't aware. So... I'll go ahead and stare at this on the computer. Well, guess who's looking at it with you? God is. 
God's right there. And, and, and you may look this way and look that way. Hey, nobody's looking, so I can look at this. And God says, uh, I, I'm looking at it with you. Or, you know, nobody's here, and nobody, so I can smoke this, or drink this, or do this, or I can act this way, or, or behave in a certain matter, and we think, oh, well, well okay, I, I, don't see any, I don't see any Christian accountability around, so <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and do this, be, and God's aware, and this was Moses' mistake, and you can tell typically when we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing, because not only do we, you know, commit the error, but then, like Moses here, what's he trying to do? He's trying to hide the thing. He's trying to bury the thing. And ultimately, God just uncovers it. we see in the next few verses. Because the Bible says our sins will always find us out. God will never, listen, if you're a Christian, if you haven't figured this out yet, here's this free information. Okay, it's free information. It's probably worth about the price of a Happy Meal, but this is free information. If you're a Christian and you do something you should not do, God is never going to let you get away with it. You can try and dig to China and cover that thing. God will find a way to ultimately uncover what you've done, and it's for your own benefit. Because God loves us, he allows things even that we try and hide and cover, and it, the time frame may be different. You may, you may even deceptively think, as the devil makes us believe sometimes, say, well, I'm getting away with it. I mean, it's been six months, nobody's busted me yet. It's been three years, nobody's found out yet. But eventually... God always brings things to light. That's why it's much wiser to just blow the horn on yourself. Much wiser. It ends up being much easier. It ends up being much more fruitful. It, it's it, confession. It, it, confession isn't just, you know, for other. Confession, it's something good for you. Just blow the horn. Hey, I did it. I just, it, when it happens, just be honest about it. And, and Moses here, tragically, and early on in his life, again, I think he's, in these first 40 years of his life, He's been filled so much with the ways of Egypt that Moses is trying to do the right thing. Again, he senses, I believe, the God-given calling in his life. In fact, let me read to you what the Bible tells us in regards to, to what Moses is trying to do here. This is from Acts chapter 7. Let's listen to this section of scripture. It says, seeing one of his brethren suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian Acts 7.25, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. In other words, at this point, Moses was sensing that God called him to be the deliverer, which God had. That was God's calling for his life, to be the deliverer. But what's Moses doing? He's trying to do it in his way and in his timing. And the reason why the whole thing goes kerplooey is guess what? Moses is 40 years early. God's called him to do this, but he's 40 years premature on what God's called him to do. God still had 40 more years before the timetable came to the right place where then God was going to use him to deliver the people of Israel. And Moses is prematurely trying to do something that God does intend him to do, but he's trying to do it in his own timing, in his own effort, and in his own way. And look what happens as a result of that. It says, verse 13, when he went out the second day, behold, then two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to one who did the wrong, hey, why are you striking your companion? And he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Next day already. He goes out, he sees two, it says this time, uh, two 
Hebrews who are fighting with one another, and he just tries to mediate. He tries to get involved and provide some uh, kind of arbitration and, and and be a judge between them and help them resolve their issues. Hey, why are you guys treating each other like this? And you know, why are you doing wrong to your brother here? And right away, he's called to account. They they reject his endeavors to try and help. Again, remember what I just read a few minutes ago. He supposed that his brethren would realize that God had called him to be a deliverer, but they didn't. He's do, he supposes, hey, don't they know I'm called? <laughs> Can't they tell I'm called? I mean, I'm just trying to do what I'm called to do here. And the reality is, is no. Nobody recognized he was called. Because he was 40 years before it was time for the calling to come to pass. And here's Moses trying to make it happen himself and trying to promote himself and put himself out there and say, hey, let, let me show you what I can do. And I want you to take notice. He couldn't even successfully bury one Egyptian. In his own efforts and in his own way, in his own time, he could not successfully kill and bury one Egyptian. Now, later on, the entire Egyptian army will be buried in the Red Sea, and Moses will have nothing to do with it because he's in God's calling, he's in God's timing, and God's the one that's doing it. But in his own efforts and energies, all he was doing was making a bloody mess. He was hurting people, he was stepping out of boundaries where he shouldn't be in his own human efforts and endeavors. Here he's trying to do this and he's called to account and say, what are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? You know, words out. Now Moses realizes, oh my goodness, people are aware that I've committed murder. And again, Moses realizes that he's a Hebrew adopted son and this was not going to be good for him. That now he has murdered an Egyptian as an adopted Hebrew child in the household of Pharaoh here. So, so Moses becomes fearful at this point and says, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of the matter, notice, relationship meant nothing anymore because an adopted Hebrew son has now just murdered an Egyptian. He heard of the matter. He sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and went and dwelt in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So at this point now, Moses is thrust out of Egypt and is forced to go out into a desert area, into the area of Midian. He flees for his life because uh, there's now, in a sense, a, a death warrant out for him because he's murdered an Egyptian, and he was going to be held to account for that. So Moses now is forced and pushed out into the middle of wilderness where he will then sit for the next 40 years while God continues to work on his character and continues to mold and shape him. And this goes back to what I said earlier, that when you look at Moses' life, it, it, it's in 40-year segments. The first 40 years, he grew up in the ways of Egypt, and, and Moses, no doubt, being equipped and educated and having all those things, probably really felt like he was something. That's probably why he just did what he tried to do. He, he felt like, hey, I, I sense God's calling, and... Obviously, I ought to do what God's called me to do because I'm something. <laughs> so the first 40 years, Moses thought he was something. The next 40 years, God brings him to the backside of the desert to teach him that he's absolutely nothing. And then when he's 80 years old, then God goes and calls him. We'll see in chapter 3. And then God has to convince Moses, listen, Moses, the first 40 years, you really thought you were something, didn't you? And then Moses has taken me 40 years now to teach you, you are nothing. You're absolutely nothing. But Moses, now that you're humble and dependent upon me, now, Moses, I want to show you that I can do something with an absolute nothing. And now that you know you're an absolute nothing, now we're ready to work. 
And now that you know that you're nothing and you have nothing to offer and you're fully convinced of that, I want to show you that by my power in hand, I can do something with an absolute nothing. And it's sort of the three phases of Moses' life, the first 40 the next 40, and then those last 40 years as he's sent to be the deliverer. So Moses now pushed out into the area of Midian. He sits down by a well, which is sort of a gathering place in the ancient culture, there where people would congregate. And it says, verse 16, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled their troughs to water their father's flocks. So typical, they would come out, uh, they would, and it was a difficult task. You know, they're reeling up the buckets of water, filling up the uh, the troughs there to uh, be able to water their flocks. And verse 17, some shepherds came and drove them away. And the idea is just these, are just you know, bully type males. They come along, they push away these daughters of Midian, and they they push their flocks in in place and try and uh, sort of oppress them. And remember, Moses hates this kind of stuff. Again, this is his temperament. It's just the way God's wired him. I think it's part of his calling. Moses cannot stand to see people taken advantage of. It bothers him. It, it, it grates on him. And, and he has a heart to always want to help. Uh, now, sometimes he does it in impetuous ways and gets himself in trouble. But again, notice, when Moses saw this, these women being bullied and taken advantage of, Moses stood up and he helped them. That was his heart. Again, it was part of his calling. Part of, I think, a call of God on your life at times is you just have a heart to help people. You want to help those who are in need, those who are less fortunate, being taken advantage of. He helped them, and he watered their flocks. So he chases away these bullies. However, that again, if you've seen the movie, it might have been that way. I don't know. You know, I know the Charlton Heston you know, pictures go roaming through all of our minds. Is that really how it happened? Well, I don't know. It just tells us that he he pushed away those bullies and, and he helped to water the flocks of the daughters of Midian. And when they came to Ruel, who was their father, he said, that's strange. How is it that you returned so soon today? Why are you back so quickly? And they said, well, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. Maybe this was a recurring problem these familiar shepherds who would come in and intimidate Ruel's daughters on occasion. They said, this Egyptian man, he showed up, he delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he drew water enough for us, and, and he watered our flock. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you've left the man? Again, he's an eligible bachelor. I have seven of you. Let's go here. You know, he's thinking to himself, why, why, why would you leave him out there? Call him that he may eat bread. Again, he wants to reward him. Ancient hospitality, it was courtesy. Bring him in, let us provide him a meal. Let me reward and thank him for helping you as my daughters. Verse 21, we see that there was more to this picture that God was doing. It says, and then Moses was content to live with the man and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses and she bore him a son and called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So Moses determines at this point, you know what, I, I, I might as well settle in here. And there's a sense here when he is content to live there among a group of shepherds. Again, who was this? This was the, the prince of Egypt. <laughs> this is a guy who was the prince of Egypt, like Harvard grad, I mean, everything possible at his fingertips. And now he's in the middle of a desert area and he's just content to say, you know what, I just that, that that's over. And he just kind of settles in where he's at, and God adds a wife to him. 
God adds a child to him. Again, God is just using all the ordinary, everyday pieces of a life existence in a very uh, just sort of common and, and very mediocre type existence where he would just live among shepherds in a very uh, sort of low-key way, very, very different than his palace life where he's out there now and he settles in, has a wife, has a child. And verse 23 says, Now it happened in the process of time. So now God's timetable is coming around. He's been out there for 40 years, we know ultimately, just tending the flocks. It happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up before God because of the bondage. Notice, so God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So, God had told Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, that for four generations they would be in a foreign land. And, and for 400 years now, they've been oppressed and they've been under forced labor. And here we read again, was God ignoring their cries? Absolutely not. What God was doing was orchestrating his plan according to his timetable. The Bible is very clear here that it says the children of Israel were groaning because of the bondage. And I'm sure it wasn't the first time they groaned. Okay, don't, don't get that. Boy, they're good. They, they didn't complain for 400 years. They got me whooped. If that's the case, you know, it takes me about 40 minutes to groan when I don't like something. That's not the, they have been groaning for years and years. And, and would you agree? No doubt. There were probably many times they're thinking, why isn't God hearing us? Why isn't God doing anything? Why isn't God answering? Why isn't God bringing about? We know he can deliver us. Why is he not doing it? What's God doing? God's orchestrating things according to his timetable, because guess what? He's God. He's God. And there was more than just the small local piece of the children of Israel being subject to forced labor. God, remember, also was waiting for the wickedness of the Amorites, Genesis 15 says, to come to completion, because God was as well going to then bring the children of Israel and not only bless them in the land, but he was also going to use them as an instrument to judge the wicked Amorites after 400 years of iniquity and not repenting of their sin to, in a sense, remove them from the land and purge them for their wickedness. So God has multiple things going on. And it tells us here that God did hear their cry, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. God's operating according to his promises and his plans. And I say that for you this evening because, listen, don't get fretful when you feel like, why isn't God doing anything? Doesn't God see what we're going through? Isn't God aware of the struggle and, and the, the mistreatment or the pain and the, the hard times that we're going through? Absolutely, he's aware. And he hears your cry and he's aware of what's going on. And he hasn't forgotten you. Don't, don't believe the lie because the timetable is not according to your preference or my preference that God has overlooked, he's forgotten, or he's abandoned you. That's not the case. God is operating on his timetable, and, and I know this is hard to swallow, but many a times what God is doing in your life has way more to do than just with you. There's other pieces involved. There's other people involved. There's other things going on that God is doing. But God here is acknowledging now, looking upon their affliction, and he's now going to raise up a deliverer for them. We know Moses 
who's been being prepared for 40 years. Again, what was God doing? God was also preparing the man. God was preparing the place and preparing the people, but God wasn't done preparing Moses. So, so God needed to finish preparing Moses so that he could adequately serve as their leader in the way that God would call him to. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, which we also know as Sinai, to the mountain of God. So at this point now, we're just given an insight regarding what Moses did for 40 years. He basically served as a shepherd, tending the flock and leading the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Again, take notice, after 40 years, Moses doesn't even have his own flock. I mean, you were talking about a radical change in the way that God has of really deflating somebody's sails. Here's somebody who is so full of himself, so self-confident, thinking that he has so much to offer, as we all do at times, and God's had him on the backside of a desert, and for 40 years, he hasn't even been able to get his own flock. He's taking care of somebody else's flock. He's tending his father-in-law's flock. I mean, God has just allowed him to experience the epitome of humility. But God has a way of doing that. Again, the Bible tells us in Proverbs repeatedly, before honor is humility. And humility and the process of humility is not an enjoyable process, but it is an extremely beneficial process that we should almost desire God to take us through because we want the Lord to use our lives. We want the Lord to be able to work in our lives. But much of the process, when the call of God is upon your life to use you for something, is, is a preparation process. And you will have, potentially, your desert experience, your wilderness experience, where God puts you in a place, and he lets your character get grinded on, and he lets humility be worked into your life, and it's all part of the preparation. It's all part of the preparation. Now, from a human perspective, I'm sure many people could look at that, and maybe, again, if they knew the big picture, to think, God, what are you doing? You're wasting time. I mean, 40 years? Moses is going to be 80 years old when the call of God starts in his life. This is The guy's at 40 years old. He's at his prime. What are you doing? He's got all that energy right now. He's, why are you going to wait till he's 80 years old? God, you, that doesn't seem like a very good use of time. But again, God doesn't do things our way. Moses is 80 years old now when the call of God is going to come upon his life, which is a great reminder that it is never a time to say, I'm too old to serve the Lord. Moses got started at 80. He got started at 80. We're never too old to serve the Lord. God's call can come to our life at any time. The important thing is to embrace it when it comes. So here he is. He's on the backside of the desert there in the area of Sinai near the mountain of God. He's leading a flock around every day. He's doing the same ordinary thing, moving a flock around, tending sheep, uh, just you know, day in, day out. He's just got this very routine, probably boring existence in his life, and he's totally content. He's also becoming familiar with the terrain because guess what? That terrain that he's been wandering around with a flock of sheep for 40 years is the same territory that God is going to use him to lead the children of Israel through. So God's preparing him. God's acquainting him with the land, preparing him to be ready to lead them through that same area that he moved around for many years, tending flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. In verse 2, now the Lord says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in the midst of the flame of fire, from the midst of a bush, and so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. 
So Moses, here he is. Again, I don't know how much goes on out in the middle of a desert, you know, like these tumbleweed bushes. It's quiet. It's boring. There's nothing happening out there. And all of a sudden, Moses sees this bush that's burning. Now, that probably wasn't that uncommon. There were probably times before where being out in a hot, dry, arid desert, if there was a lightning strike or other things, that bramble bushes and, and things like this would catch fire, but they would burn up instantly. If you picture like a you know, piece of tumbleweed and you light a match to that thing, it just it would just would just light light up and burn up real quick. But the Bible tells us here the thing that caught Moses' attention, notice, is he saw a bush on fire, but the bush wasn't being consumed. It was on fire, and it, it didn't stop burning. So he's looking at it, and he's thinking, well, that's strange. How, that thing is on fire, but it's not burning up. It's not being good. So, so what's God doing? God's got his attention now. And God always has ways of getting our attention when he wants to speak to us. It's interesting, the things that God will use in our lives. You know, God will use whatever it takes to get our attention when he wants to speak to us. So he's now got Moses' attention. He turns to look. And Moses said, I'm going to go turn aside and see this great sight. Notice why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him in the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And I'm sure that had to be a little bit startling. You know, why is this bush burning? And then all of a sudden the bush starts talking to you. You know what, what is that? And all of a sudden now God speaks to him. As we see God speak to people many times in the Bible and he repeats his name twice. Moses, Moses, we see Abraham, Abraham, Martha, Martha, Saul, Saul, and, and, and God speaks his name twice, indicating Moses, I know you, I know you, Moses, and I've known you since the day that you grew up, and I, I knew what you were like in Egypt, and Moses, I've known you, and I know all that you've been going through these last 40 years, Moses, I'm fully acquainted with everything you're thinking, I'm fully aware that right now you think, I guess God's plan doesn't exist anymore. I guess I'll be content to just settle in out here in the middle of this desert and tend a flock of sheep. Moses, he says, Moses says, here am I. And he said, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now, the presence of God breaks into his life. He's having an appearance from the Lord. God is speaking to him in his life. And the Lord says to him, take your sandals off. Again, this was typical in ancient culture. They usually would take their sandals off because they felt like that their sandals had walked through things and defiled things. So again, this was very cultural. He would understand, you know, the sandals would come off so that you didn't defile someone's home or it was just a respectful thing to do. And he's in the presence of God now. But where is he? He's in the middle of a desert. A bush is burning in front of him. And the Lord says... The place where you are, where you're standing here, is holy ground. It's holy ground. What made that ordinary piece of ground in the desert holy ground? One thing, the presence of God. And see, this is a great reminder that, that the thing that makes something holy and sacred is one thing. It's the presence of God. It's the presence of God that makes makes something holy. So, there can be ordinary things. Again, here's Moses on a piece of dirt out in the middle of a desert, and God says, this is holy ground. So there can be ordinary parts of your life. And you know, this is so ordinary. It's just so ordinary. But when the presence of God is involved in your life, that makes what is ordinary become extraordinary. 
And it makes it then become a holy place where God's presence should be reverenced and respected. And here Moses now is beginning to have this experience with the Lord as the call of God is coming upon his life. And verse 6 says, Moreover, he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses, notice, hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So he's brought to that place where he now has a reverence, he has the fear of God put into his life. And I'll tell you something, that's a very other critical piece for the calling of God being upon your life. And again, chapter 3 is a great chapter, chapter 3 and 4, of what it means to be prepared for the call of God upon our lives. And Moses has experienced humility. He's hearing God's voice. He's now experiencing having the fear of God put into his life because he reverences the presence of God. And he realizes the presence of God that makes things become holy in his life. And again, so many times in the Bible, on occasion, God will reveal himself in this form as a fire. Remember Hebrews, God says, I'm a consuming fire. The Lord's a consuming fire. So here Moses now hears God speak to him. And verse 7 says, the Lord said to him, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know, take notice, God says, I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up from the land to a good and large land. So God wanted to deliver them out of their bondage, but to bring them into a place of plenty and prosperity. And that's so often what God wants to do in our lives. He sees our time of struggle. He may have us in a season where it's hard and difficult. And God says, yes, and that was for that season. But I want to deliver you out of that because I'm now going to bring you into something that he says is a good and large land. God wanted to expand them and bless them. It was a land, the land of Canaan, that we'll read that was flowing with milk and honey that just speaks of how it was a land of great prosperity and fertility. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them so God says to Moses Moses my heart is burdened for these people I see their condition and I want you to see something do you see where the call of God should have its inception in the heart of God not in the heart of a person God says I see the condition they're in Moses I am aware of what's going on my heart is aching for them I'm concerned for them and Moses I want you to fulfill what's on my heart and I tell you something, if we want to be open to God using us, I think one of the things that we should be seeking the Lord about, Lord, what's on your heart? Lord, what's your heart burdened for? What are you concerned about? Who are you concerned over? Lord, would you put your burden on my heart? Not, Lord, I've got this really creative, ingenious idea, and would you bless this? No, Lord, what's, what's on your heart? What's your heart concerned about? Give me your heart for those that maybe you are concerned with. And again, in this case, it was them. It may be for us a particular community. It may be for you a particular subculture or people group that God would show you and put on your heart the burden that he has, maybe for a particular individual or group of people or territory or community, that God would then say to you, verse 10, Come now, therefore, and this was the shocker for Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh 
that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, Moses begins, as we'll see, and we'll, we'll see this as we move next week in the chapter four and so forth, this series of like five excuses now. God's calling is a coming upon his life, but you can tell he's a completely different man now. Because now here Moses says, when God says, I'm going to send you, Moses, you're going to be my deliverer. You're going to be my instrument to set them free. Moses says, who am I? Now, before Moses would have said, I know who I am <laughs> and, and, and I've got something to contribute. So let me go out there and start trying to bury Egyptians before Moses knew who he was. Now Moses is saying, who am I? Who am I? Again, God's orchestrated tremendous humility into his heart now. And what's his first excuse and his first struggle with embracing the call of God? Do you see it in verse 11 there? Who am I? The idea is inadequacy. Lord, I'm inadequate for this. Who am I? And, and a lot of times God may call you to do something and he may say, look, I want to use you to do this. I want to send you to do that. I have a purpose and a plan. And I, this is what my calling is for you. And many a times, God calls us the things that we feel completely inadequate to do. And that's okay. Because guess what that does? It makes us dependent upon God. And it causes us to realize that if anything is going to happen, God's the one that's going to have to do it. And God is not interested in our ability anyway. God's interested in our availability. And so often, this is a struggle. We, like Moses, sometimes we, we think, Lord, I'm so inadequate. I don't know the Bible well enough. I, Lord, I'm, 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 you know, I'm too young. I'm too old. I, Lord, I just, I'm so inadequate. I can't speak. I don't have those skills or those abilities. Or, and, and we point out all of our inadequacies, and we just feel that we're utterly inadequate. And the truth of the matter is, we are. It's almost silly that we. It's almost silly to me that I tell God about my adequacy, and God's saying, well, "Were you ever thinking you were adequate? Why are you shocked by that?" I mean. It's almost strange that we have to tell God we're inadequate. There's almost like a false like a false humility behind that. But we genuinely feel like that. And there's a fear, I understand. And maybe God's calling you or leading you to do something now or in the future. And you're wrestling with that. Oh, Lord, I'm, who am I? I, just, I? just I don't have the ability to do what I think you're putting on my heart. Look what God says, verse 12. So he said, I will certainly be with you. There's the answer to inadequacy. Who am I? God says, here's the answer to your inadequacy, my presence. Moses, I will be with you. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, with God, nothing will be impossible. With God. If God is with us, the impossible becomes possible. And God's answer to Moses is, Moses, I know that you don't think there's anything that you have to offer. It's taken me 40 years to get you here, son. But Moses, now that you realize you're nothing, I want to show you that I can, I by my presence with you, I'll be with you. And I can make something out of nothing. And I can do something through your yielded life as you're humbly dependent upon me. Again, his ambitions are gone now. His desires for greatness are gone. He's content to just live in the desert and stay put where he's at, doing what he's doing day in and day out. And God says, Moses, now, now by my presence with you, he says, I'll be with you. That is sufficient, my presence. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. Notice, big difference. Before Moses went, he went out and tried to do God's work. Now, 
He's being sent out. Big, big difference. We don't want to be known for those who went out. I think at times, hey, people went out. We want to be sent out. Moses was sent by God. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, he says, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, what is his name? And the idea there, again, names were associated with identity and were associated with what someone was capable to do. They were representative of the person. So the idea here, what is your name? The indication being, what kind of God is this you're talking about? What kind of God are you trying to tell us is going to deliver us from this bondage that we've been in for 400 years? So he says, when I go to them, God, and I say, they say, what is his name? What should I tell them? God, I don't, I don't even know what to tell them. I don't have all the answers. That's another excuse we give a lot of times, isn't it? God says, this is what I'm calling you to do. I want you to do this. Well, God, I'm inadequate. Okay, let's get over Let's work through the inadequate. Get through the, okay, we got through the inadequate thing. All right, God, next thing. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the information. And God says, right, it's, it's, you need to be humble. And it's got to all be by faith. It's going to all be by faith. You're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to have every piece of information of what to say and how it's going to happen. He's got questions. We have questions when we obey God. What's his name? Look what God tells him. Very simply, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God says, Moses, here's what I want you to tell them. Tell them I am who I am. The idea is, is when you look at the language there, you know, th that God is the self-existent God. I, I am the God that's self-existent. I'm dependent upon no one. I have always been. I will always be. There's never a time, or, and Moses, I don't dwell in the realm that you and other people do. I am who I am. I'm the ever-present, self-existent God. The Hebrew there literally indicates the all-becoming one. That God is the all-becoming one, the one that becomes whatever it is that we need. And that's a wonderful thing when you consider the nature of God, that that is what God, that God says, this is who I am. Again, when we look at the reality of God revealing himself, and again, we see that capital L-O-R-D in the Bible as well. It's that, that Hebrew tetragrammaton. We, we probably believe it is translated Yahweh. We're not 100% certain. And this seems to be a play on words of that same kind of thing here. But the indication is that God is saying, I am the one who, because I'm ever-present and self-existent, that will always become whatever it is that you need. And that's a wonderful thing to consider about God in our lives, that God is who he is. He's the ever-present, all-becoming one. So if we need provision, then God becomes our provision. If we need protection, God becomes our protection. If we need righteousness, God becomes our righteousness. If we need companionship, God becomes our companionship. And because God is the ever-existent, self-sufficient God of all time and eternity, he is able to say, listen, wherever you're at and whatever you're going through and whatever you need, I can become that for you. And what a wonderful thing to think that this is the God that we serve, and this is the God that asks us to do things for him so that we realize, look, I don't have to be concerned about when needs arise along the way, and I don't have to be overwhelmed when I try and figure out, okay, Lord, I need provision. Where's provision going to come from? Because God says, I'll become whatever you need. That's why, remember, you see the compound names of God when you go through the Bible in the Old Testament. 
where Genesis chapter 2, God reveals himself as uh, uh, Yahweh, Jireh, or Jehovah, Jireh, the Lord, our provision. And, and, and the idea, again, you know, Yahweh, Shalom, and, and whatever we need, do we need peace? God becomes our peace. Do we need a shepherd? God becomes our shepherd. Do we need provision? God becomes our provision. And whatever we need in our lives, God's assuring Moses to assure them, I'll become whatever it is you and the people need in this process. Moreover, verse 15, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go gather the elders of Israel together. Say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said that I will bring you out of the affliction to the land of the Canaanites and all those other ites. Verse 18, and they will heed your voice and you shall come and you and the elders of Israel to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. God says, verse 19, Moses, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders. And we'll see that when the plagues begin to come to pass and chapters ahead, which I will do in his midst. And after that, he will let you go. So God gives him, in a sense, the initial plan. He says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the elders, gather the leaders together. Tell them that I've revealed myself to you. Tell them that I've heard their cry, that I want to deliver them out. Share with them what's on my heart for them and what I intend to do, that I've called you to accomplish this. And God says, and they'll listen to you. The elders, the leadership, those whose hearts are in leadership, he says, they'll, they'll have a responsive heart. They will sense that the hand of God is in this and upon your life. And he says, and then after they listen to you, you and the leaders, he then says, will go to the king of Egypt, verse 18, and say to him, the God, imagine this, you know, it's going into Pharaoh's uh, little chamber there. The God of the Hebrews, our, our God has appeared to us, and he says that you need to let us go. <laughs> you need to, and, and he says, and, and Moses, here's what I'm telling you. He's not going to listen to you. He tells him directly in advance. He says, verse 19, I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. He says, so then I will have to stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I'll do in his midst. And then after that, he will let you go. Take notice what God's saying. Moses, here's my plan. Here's what I want you to do. This is my purpose. These are my instructions. But Moses just because you encounter problems along the way does not mean that I'm not involved in this. The leaders, they're going to listen to you. Pharaoh, he's going to give you a really hard time. <laughs> and you're going to experience resistance and friction. And see, it's important for us to realize. Sometimes we think when we're following the call of God or we're fulfilling the plans and purposes of God, that that just means that there's going to be absence of problems and absence of conflict and resistance Listen, just because we're in the midst of the will of God and following the will of God does not mean there's going to be an absence of difficulty. That's part of the process. 
And sometimes that's a part of the satanic existence, and other times it's a part of God doing things in the lives of people on the other side that we're interacting with. Paul says, a great and effective door has opened up to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, I wish that was not in the same verse. I hate that. Open door adversary. Those two things shouldn't even exist. <laughs> Open door adversary that doesn't go right together. But that's part of the way the Lord works. And I leave you with this thought tonight because our time eludes us. If you're seeking the Lord in something or you're you know, serving the Lord, following the Lord, and you're pursuing a path that you think God is leading you on, and you're getting resistance and obstacles, and there are difficulties involved, listen, don't be discouraged. God's aware of those difficulties. And it doesn't mean that God's not in it. It just means that God is maybe doing other things in the process that you're not aware of, and ultimately in God's timing, God will open the right doors, and God will grant you what he intends to grant you and still fulfill his purposes. That's exactly ultimately what happens with Israel, with the Pharaoh of Egypt.